Please take your Bible if you have one, or if you have some other device, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 through 23. We're talking about building wisely. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll begin at verse 10. Recently at Pastor Michael's house, we had a pipe break uh, underneath my sprinkler box near the front of my home. So I got a family member to come over. This is typically what I do. Uh, when something's broken, I don't know how to fix it. So <laughs> I got a, a very gracious family member to come over. I, I won't say his name right now because <laughs> I don't want to embarrass him. But anyway, as digging was going on and I was leaning on a shovel overseeing the uh, situation, <laughs> all of a sudden, the foundation of our home was exposed. And uh, it wasn't a bad thing. It just, where this was positioned and where dirt was being dug up, not by me, by somebody else, it was, it was commented, hey, that's the foundation of your house. And it was, you know, cement that was very thick. And uh, it was like, oh, that's interesting. It's not often that you get a look at the foundation of your house, right? It's, it's not often that you get a look, maybe some of you do, I don't know if you do this in your free time, but that you get a look at what's underneath your home, your physical home, but we're going to make the jump to your spiritual home or your life itself. See, one of the most important things that you can understand about your life is really the foundation of it. What's, what's at the bottom of it? What's holding up your life? Well, in this case, as I looked at this slab, it was pretty impressive. It looked strong, just like a foundation needs to look. It's not something I often think about. I may have talked about it before, but when you get a, a vis visible view of the foundation of what's holding up your home, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting thought. Well, we're going to talk about building wisely today. We're going to talk about the fact that the Apostle Paul, in addressing the Corinthian church, is going to talk to them about foundations. And right out of the gate, I just want to ask you, and maybe you can be quick to answer this question, and maybe this is not, maybe you're not certain. And that's okay if you're not right now. But I want to ask you this question, what is your foundation? Truly, what's your foundation? Of your life, of your ministry, of your marriage, can you say that I'm building on the right foundation? Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, talked about two different people. He said, there are people who hear my words and they act upon them. And they're like a person who built his house upon, remember, the rock. And the wind comes and the storm comes and it beats against that house. And that house stands because it's been well built. I'll show you another kind of person. It's the person who hears the same sermon but does not act upon it. That person is like a person who built their house where? Upon the sand. And when that same storm comes and the same winds blow, that house falls and great is its fall. Jesus, at the end of the most famous sermon perhaps ever preached, and I think it is, Ended with foundations. And he said, look, there are two kinds of people. Both hear my messages. One acts upon it. One does not. One builds upon a rock. The other one builds upon sand. And that's essentially what your life's going to come down to. You're going to have to ask the question, what am I truly building on? 
What is my foundation as an individual? We're talking about the fact that many scholars, contemporary scholars, believe that those words in Matthew 7, if you want to write it down, 24 through 27, have to do with the final wind of judgment, the storm of judgment that will beat against a person's life, if you will. And whether or not they stand in the judgment on the final day will be all about this. What did you build on? Did you build on Christ or on something else? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it, 1 Corinthians 3.10, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Now when Paul came into Corinth, and he was there for some 18 months, he planted a church in a very cosmopolitan city. He had given them a metaphor in verse 9, take a peek uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, which was agricultural, which, you know, in that day, many people could relate to. But in Corinth, probably more so to an architectural metaphor. But look at verse 9 for a second. It says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. And then he transitions from agriculture to architecture, God's building. And then he continues with the building metaphor using the idea that he was a wise master builder. See the phrase master builder there? In the New American Standard, it's a single Greek word. It's where we get the word architect. If you do a little homework on the word, they say that the word is not necessarily that Paul was saying that he was the architect of the church. He is not. Jesus said, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Jesus is the architect of the church, but as a master builder, Paul said, I took the plans of the master, if you will, and like a general contractor, I am executing the plan. Now, a general contractor, if you've ever been involved in building projects, and some of you are in this very position or have been in the past, a general contractor will take the plans of an architect and put a team of people in place in their areas of expertise to build a building project. When we bought this building, this building was built, it was a shell, but it needed to be finished. And, and electrical and plumbing and paint and all these different areas needed to be taken care of. And so there was a general contractor who kind of put the subs in place, if you will, but then each one worked in their area of expertise. And it was amazing to watch these guys do what they do because they're extremely good at what they do. And whether it was the plumber or the electrician or someone who was doing the lighting or whatever it, it may be, each area, I was personally impressed with each area how good these guys are. But they were taking plans that were drawn up by someone else and executing the plan. The plan for the church has been drawn up. God has general contractors, if you will, but he also has subs. And the subs come in and they do their individual parts. And when we look at the, the body metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, we'll see how Paul will use the human body as another way to communicate this same truth. We are in this together. We are building something. The foundation's been laid. The foundation is immovable. There is no other foundation. Look at verse 11. For no man, 1 Corinthians 3.11, can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is, 
Would you mark it? Jesus Christ. No man can lay a foundation other than the one that has been laid, which is Jesus. Now, implied in verse 11 may be that some attempt to do so, and certainly we would admit that that is the case. There are people who are building on foundations other than Christ. There are people who deny the biblical Christ. There are people who say you could build on something else besides Jesus. Maybe Jesus isn't the answer. Maybe there could be three or four different foundations upon which you would build. That may be ideas that are out there. That may be spiritual ideas or religious persuasions that exist in the marketplace of ideas. But the fact is this. My Bible says there's one foundation. It's been laid. Jesus Christ has come to the world. He has died for the sins of the world. He has risen from the dead in the very history in which we now live. And the question is, will you build your life upon Him or not? Will you do it God's way or not? Some of you who are in building uh, jobs know about building codes. Building codes can certainly be a pain. (laughs) It seems like you need a permit for everything. But building codes exist, and usually this is why codes and rule books exist in every area of life, to keep tragedies from happening. For example, we have building codes to make buildings safe in case of earthquakes, right? And so a building might have to be, you know, extra stuff is done in order to protect it if there was a certain level of an earthquake. And if, you know, if you've been in Southern California for a while and the ground starts a rocking, it's always nice to know that the building was well built. It's nice to know that the structure is in place because in the ancient world and even today, there are multitudes of earthquakes that occurred and buildings collapsed and people died. You see, foundations really matter when tragedies occur, right? When storms come, earthquakes come, and the like. We want to make sure that things are well built. We want to make sure we're following the building code. Jesus Christ is the only foundation upon which we can build this superstructure of the church. If He is not the foundation, the building is going to fall. J. Vernon McGee, I think, was telling a story. He was in downtown L.A., and he had seen a pretty impressive building, and it looked great on the outside, but actually there was a sign on the building that it was condemned because the structure was questionable. It was, it, there was cracks in it and so forth. We don't want any cracks in the foundation. You see, all other human foundations are going to give way at some point. All buildings, if I can put that in quotes, at some point will give way. We look at humanity. We look at how weak and vulnerable we can be. And so Paul, using the building analogy, says in verse 12, If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, you got to build on the foundation. Each man should be, verse 10, look at the end of the verse, be careful how he builds upon it. The foundation is there, but now there is a call for being careful. Be careful how you live your life. 
Paul says, as a wise master builder, back in verse 10, I laid a foundation. I planted the church in Corinth, and another is building upon it. Here, I think he still has Apollos and himself in view. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Look at two key words. According to the grace of God, verse 10, uh, which was given to me, Paul says it's by grace. We're saved by grace. But grace here is the strengthening power of God. Anything that we will build, whether it's ministry, family, etc., will be done by the grace or the power of God. Paul received this word from Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. Grace in many contexts becomes a synonym for the power of God. So it's not just I'm saved by grace, that's huge, but it is about the power of God. My grace has to do with my power. So Paul says, look, I laid the foundation by the grace of God, and I want to be wise about how I build. I want to be a wise master builder. I want to build wisely. I want to be careful. Be careful how you walk, Ephesians 5.15 says, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of your time because what? The days are evil. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you build. The foundation's there, but you've got to build carefully. And so each man, each woman, needs to be careful how they build. We don't want to build in carnality. Paul addressed the carnal man in chapter 2. We don't want to, uh, in chapter 3, he said, I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal. We want to build wisely. We want to grow up. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now the passage is written to the church. And the church needs to hear this with fresh ears. Because what we have all over our country right now, and the world for that matter, is building projects, churches that are trying to be built with questionable foundations. The name of Jesus is mentioned very little in these places. It's all about entertainment, emotion, hype, you name it. But if you extract the foundation, if you lose sight of the one who is the center and core and substance of all that we do, you've lost your way. And I will tell you this, that churches that are not built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ will eventually be very wobbly especially in tough times. Because not every Sunday is about jumping up and down and hollering and, and emotion. Sometimes it's just simply about sitting before the Lord and saying, Lord, we, we need to hear from you on this matter or this matter or this matter. And I, I look at the church in our world today and frankly, sometimes I'm, I'm just fearful for what I see. We need to get back to foundations. We need to get back to God's foundation and God's building materials. For no man, I don't care who you are, how slick you think your new ideas may be, can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I was reading a commentary on this, and one author said, if you're a Christian, uh, he's your rock. Christ provides two of the greatest longings of the human heart. Stability, true shalom, 
stability in your life in every season, every storm, and relationships anchored in unity. Jesus Christ gives two of the most important longings of the human heart, true stability and anchor, uh, relationships anchored in true unity. Think about our world right now. How much do we need stability in our world? How much do we need true unity? Love. Things that will connect people. You know, I think people who are outside the church today long for what happens here. And in fact, there are people who are trying to duplicate what exists in the church outside the church by removing the foundation of Christ. There are atheist churches. Did you know this? They meet in church buildings now abandoned, sadly, many of them in Europe. And they get together and they sing songs and they give talks and they hug each other and they share food. They, they have one thing missing. <laughs> they, they, they almost make it sound like it's fairly minor. We, we just don't have God there, but we do the rest of the stuff that the church does. <laughs> now, I, I've got news for you. I like you all. But if God was not the foundation of what we're doing, there's some good football games on this morning, right? <laughs> See, our unity springs from the foundation. We love each other because we are in Christ. We have eternal bonds that have yoked us together. That's why we're here. I'm here because He bought me. He called me. He gave me grace and gifts that I want to use to glorify Him and to bless His body. And so shaky foundations will not do. Wobbly foundations will not do. We must build the church upon Jesus and the scriptures that teach about Jesus. Turn to the book of Romans for a second. Just a few pages back to Romans 15. Romans 15. Look at verse 15. Romans 15, 15. Paul's writing to the Roman church, a church that he longed to minister to, one that he did not found, but it says this, Romans 15, 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, 15, 16, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become accept, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. Paul said, look, I'm using the building materials in each and every situation, if you turn back in, to 1 Corinthians, to honor the one that bought me. I want to build upon the foundation, whether it's the Roman church or the Corinthian church, whether I planted it or not, to be a blessing. Now, verse uh, 12 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, this refers to 
fine stone materials. Some see in here materials like marble and granite that build, built uh, ancient structures in the uh, ancient world. And of course, if you were living in Corinth, you'd be walking around the Agora or the marketplace, and everywhere you looked, there would be a temple, a temple to this god, a temple to this goddess. And you'd be able to see uh, Greek pillars and incredible buildings. The ruins are still there today. So in a cosmopolitan city, you might see a farm, you might see this or that, but your whole life would be surrounded by buildings that you could look at and analyze and, and consider how they were built. And Paul says, look, as you look around your city, you might see buildings that are built with marble and granite, the kind of stones that were commonly used, says Ray Steadman, in the construction of buildings were stones and gra of granite and marble. Gold and silver were often overlaid on stone to add the beauty and durability of a structure. Paul looks, first of all, at what is valuable, what will be strong, precious stones, and so forth. And then he looks at what is worthless, wood, hay, and straw. Of all that we could say about the end of verse 12, it's simply this. The building materials that you use are all important, especially if something happens, something goes on, like a storm or even a fire. Each man's work, 13, will become evident for the day will show it. Each man's work and what he built with, 1 Corinthians 3.13, will become evident for the day. Would you mark that in your Bible? For the day will show it. I believe the day there is the day of the Lord. The second coming of Jesus Christ because it is to be revealed with fire. Jesus is coming with the angels in flaming fire. And the fire itself, middle of 13, will test the what? The quality. It doesn't say the quantity there. It says the quality of each man's work. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, those eyes that look like flames of fire in Revelation 1.14 and 2.18, the fire of testing will come. Jesus is going to judge the unbelieving world by fire, the fire of judgment, but the church is going to go through a different kind of fire. Not the fire of judgment, but the fire of testing. You see, your sin was paid for in full where? At the cross. That's a done deal. If you have built your life on the foundation of Christ, you're saved, you're forgiven, praise the Lord. But there is a day coming, please hear me well, because this is where Christians often say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm saved, so... I don't, I, don't, I don't think it really matters what I do. I don't think it matters if I live in sin or don't do much in the ministry. Oh, it matters. Because what it's going to determine is your reward. And if you have nothing to show on that day, you'll get in because you're saved by grace and not by works. But you're going to get in by your skinny skin skin. <laughs> You're going to get in, barely. You see, the fire is going to test the quality. How did you build? Not, did you use shortcuts as a means to an end? Well, we did it this way because we knew that this would happen and that would... No, 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 no. God cares about how you build and with what you build because with what you build will bring stability. 
There are many churches in the U.S. that are a mile wide and an inch deep. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's because we're so concerned about filling seats and entertaining people and making sure that we get bodies in the door that we don't give substance. And it's sad. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul comments on this day when he says, Therefore, 4, 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, some have seen purgatory in this verse. I was raised in a Roman Catholic house, and I was uh, taught the idea of purgatory. My grandfather had a stroke when we were mowing the lawn. I was in the lawn. I was uh, with my grandfather doing the lawn, and all of a sudden, my grandfather... It just got really weird, and he didn't even know who I was, and he was calling me by different names. And I remember being a little kid and thinking, my grandfather ended up dying shortly thereafter, that my grandfather ended up in purgatory. I didn't think my grandpa was in heaven because of the type of person he was, just to be honest. He's pretty hard. And uh, anyway, I remember every night I would pray, and I felt like it was my responsibility to pray my grandpa out of purgatory. What I thought was probably happening there is that my grandpa was in some sort of purifying judgment that he had to work off all the bad stuff he had done so hopefully he could make it into heaven in some amount of time, you know, whatever, whatever that might look like. Well, I'll tell you this, that 1 Corinthians 3.13 is not talking about purgatory. It's simply talking about a day when the Lord will weigh our works. It's talking about what we know as the Bema seat of Christ. Flip over to Romans, again, a few pages back. Let me develop this for a second because this is important. You've heard this before, but Romans 14 is dealing with different opinions that Christians have about non-essential matters, what people eat, drink, wear, days of worship. And Romans 14.10 says this, But you, 14.10, why do you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, obviously, this is written to Christians. The word judgment there is the Greek word bima. That's the bima seat of Christ. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 5, a little bit to your right. One other main passage I'd show you about this, about the bima seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, this is verse... Eight. We are of good courage, and I say prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear, written to that same Corinthian church now, before the judgment or the bema seat of Christ. B-E-M-A is the word that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, or you could translate that, whether good or worthless. The Bema seat of Christ is not a judge's seat, 
This is from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, The word bima refers not to a judge's seat in the court of law, in a court of law, but to a bench upon which referees sat at an athletic contest. It was the place from which those who did well in the contest and triumphed were rewarded with a laurel wreath, and from which those who broke the rules were disqualified or disapproved. The bema seat is not a judgment seat, as in, I'm going to judge you for your sin. Your sin was paid for where? At the cross. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3. Was it paid in full at the cross? Yes. So this is not an issue of sin for the Christian. This is an issue of what you did with the gifts, talents, time that you've been given. What you do with your life matters in the light of eternity. The first and most important thing is make sure you're saved. Make sure you know Jesus Christ. Make sure you've received that saving uh, message of Christ and that he's in your life. But once you're saved, there's something to do. There's something to be about. You see, if any man's, 1 Corinthians 3.14, work, which he has built upon it, upon that foundation, remains or survives, NIV, or endures New King James, back in verse 14 of chapter 3. He shall receive a reward. So the fire will test the work. And if your work goes through the fire, and it's not wood, hay, and straw that goes up like a puff of smoke, and it endures, it passes the fire of judgment, you'll get a reward. You can see this in Luke 19 and Matthew 25. And the Lord of the church will say, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But if any man's work is 15 burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire or through the flame. Some of you have seen movies and television programs where there's a fire in a building, an explosion, and they go in and try to rescue people. And they're trying to save somebody and grab uh, someone to survive. And they, they run out just in time to beat the flames. That's the image of the second person. They get out. They, they survive. Maybe clothes smoking. Maybe ash on their face. But as far as the house is concerned, it's rubble. They, they survived the fire because Christ saves by grace. But as far as rewards are concerned, 15, they shall suffer loss. Now, I get the idea, and you can take this for what it's worth, that the works will go into the fire of testing. And, of course, Jesus is omniscient, so he already knows everything. He knows motives. He knows why we did what we did, what we used, etc. And some things may be burned in the fire and some things will survive it and what goes through the fire which was good quality work right materials will get rewarded for praise god some things will just simply go up and smoke but i wonder about some people if they'll have anything to show and some people say i don't i don't care as long as i get in baby i don't care if my clothes are smoking as long as I have a broom in the courtyard of God, I'm good. You may be good, but I'll tell you, if we have options, I wouldn't mind a nice mansion. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, right? I mean, a broom in heaven is all right, but I'd rather have a mansion, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not looking to get in going like, wow, wow, that was close. Are you? Some of you are living like you are. Ooh, Pastor Mike, I know. I know, but, but here it is, right? Peter says, I want to make a grand entrance into that kingdom. Not that it's about me, but I want to stand for him because he stood for me at the cross. I want to stand for him because he was willing to go to the lengths that he went to to secure my salvation. I don't want to just mail it in now and say, well, thanks a lot, God. Next emergency, I'll be giving you a call. I'll be the guy with the smoking clothes that, uh, you know, that angel that sits at that desk. I'll already be smoking when I'm there. It'll be easy to tell. And now, dear children, continue in him. So that when he appears, 1 John 2.28, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Look, if you've been building with quality materials, and I'm not talking about doing somebody else's work. I'm talking about just being true to the gifts that God's given you. Don't get unnerved. You're fine. God's a God of grace. But for those maybe in the Corinthian congregation and maybe here in Corona who have been playing games with God, showing up on major holidays, yeah, I'm a Christian, but doing nothing, well, each one of us will stand before the Lord of the church. Now, standing before the Lord of the church excites me. I hope it does you. To see his nail-pierced hands, to look into his eyes. But, but that meeting, you know, I know we've all heard the song, I Can Only Imagine, and I think it's true. You know, will I be able to speak at all? Will I just fall before him? Will I dance? I don't know, but this I do know. The Bible tells me I'm going to give an account for how I managed what he gave me. And I want to do well. You see, do you not know that you are the temple of God? The Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16, dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, we continue to see a building metaphor, God will destroy him. For the temple, singular, of God is holy or sacred. And that is what you, plural, are. We are God's building project. God is building his church brick by brick. And God takes actions against his church very seriously. In fact, he says, those who destroy the temple or try to harm it, maybe better rendered, try to hurt it or harm it, the temple of God, God will deal very seriously with them. See, sometimes we wonder, well, what about people who have persecuted the church? What about people who have done this and done that? God takes that very seriously. He'll work that out. And even people who may hurt the church, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, lied about what they had given, and uh, the Lord dealt very swiftly with them. Uh, they were both killed. I'm glad that that's not happening today, right? And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 
we'll see that some were sick and some had actually died in the Corinthian church because they were playing games with God. So nothing to mess with, certainly. So we'll sum up. You are the temple of God, so let no man deceive you or deceive himself. If any man, verse 18, among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he might or he may become wise. The things of God to certain people seem foolish, don't they? They say, that's foolish. Why, why do you people do that? Here's Warren Wiersbe. The Corinthians were trying to build their church by man's wisdom. The wisdom of this world, when they should have been depending on the wisdom of God found in the Word of God. The world depends on promotion, prestige, and the influence of money or important people. The church depends on prayer and the power of the Spirit. Humility, sacrifice, and service. The church that imitates the world may seem to succeed in time, but it will turn to ashes in eternity, close quote. You see, on that day, all foundations and all building materials will be clear. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions, Proverbs 18.2. But we are trying to do things by the wisdom of God. For the wisdom of this world, 19, is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Write in your Bible there, Job 5.13. This was spoken by Eliphaz the Temanite. And the NIV says, He catches the wise in their craftiness, Job 5.13. And the schemes of the wily are swept away. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless or they are futile. Write in your Bible there, Psalm 94, verse 11. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but we'll look at the last two verses together. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all these teachers that they were dividing over and debating about, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Instead of saying, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos or Cephas, you should be saying, we already have all things. All these teachers belong to the church because they belong to Christ. Amen? You don't have to fight about which teacher you follow. They are already all yours anyway. Peter has good things to say. Apollos has good things to say. Paul has good things to say. But they all belong to you, so there's no need to be partisans around certain teachers. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Now I'll take you to Psalm 94, and we're done. Psalm 94, let's turn there. And I was looking at this this week in light of what happened in Pittsburgh at the synagogue, and just thinking about God's work in the church and what we're supposed to be doing in this day. And I think this is apropos, and it's a good way to conclude. Psalm 94 Verse 1. I want you to see this maybe as even a, a sense of a prayer that you might have. O Lord God of vengeance, Psalm 94, verse 1. God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. 
How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage, verse 6. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. When will you understand, stupid ones? That's a great verse right there. Did you know that stupid was in the Bible right there? That's it's glorious. Anyway, he who planted the ear or made the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You ever asked your eye doctor about the eye? Oh, it's incredible. The number of light-sensitive cells, the, the majesty of your eye. Oh, it was designed. And the one who designed your eye, do you think that he doesn't see? Oh, he does. He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. But they are a mere breath. There's your verse quoted in uh, 1 Corinthians, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Every one of his ideas ultimately outside of God, are futile. Blessed is the man, on the other hand, whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, and dost thou teach, dost teach out of thy law, that thou mayest grant him relief from the days of adversity, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say, my foot has slipped, thy loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with thee, one which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Paul says in Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, when we look at our world, we... We want to weep sometimes at what happens, and that's appropriate. We know, Jesus, that you wept over Jerusalem, and we know that you had called them, but they would not listen. But to as many as received you, to them you gave the right to be the children of God. Lord, foundations are just so important. What we're truly building on and how we build will be revealed in that day. And that will be a day of rejoicing for the church.
for those who have done their part. And Lord, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot that you ask of us. Those who have been about your business, engaged their gifts, shared the gospel, worshiped in spirit and in truth, built the church, there will be a reward. Some on that day will suffer loss but be grateful for saving grace. But on that day, when you are revealed, Lord, it's going to be an awesome day. It's a day that we look forward to because what follows it is a, a time of peace, a time that the Jews call the golden age, a time when all that was wrong, all that hurt and wounded, the curse and sin will be taken away and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more pain. The former things will have passed away. You say, behold, I'm making all things new. Lord, help us as your church to anticipate that day, to be building toward that day. You've given us so many blessings. We want to enjoy our lives, our families, the many blessings you pour upon us, but we want to always have an eye on that day when you are revealed, that day of rejoicing, that day of Maranatha, that day that we say, come Lord Jesus. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you're maybe not sure you're a Christian, maybe you've been away from the Lord for quite some time, maybe you just feel like you're someone who, you're a Christian, but you haven't done much with the gifts that God has given you. These are moments that you don't want to let pass you by. This is a time to make a commitment if you're not saved to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And if that's you and you're not sure that you've built on that foundation, if you're not sure you belong to Christ the rock, cry out to him. Lord Jesus, save me. Just a simple prayer. I'm sorry for my sin. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Be my foundation. Be my life and my strength. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I believe you died on that cross for me and paid for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I ask you into my life. Save me and change me. If you're a prodigal, and maybe you got saved many moons ago, but your life has not looked like you're a Christian, maybe this is a moment where you can just say, Lord, I want to use my gifts. They've been on a shelf. I want to understand them and engage them. I want to stand before you on that day and have something to show for all you gave me. That's a good prayer. It's a prayer that God will honor. And Father, for this wonderful congregation that I know is hungry to know you, to know your word, and to serve you, may you bless them, Lord. May you strengthen the marriages and the families here. May you strengthen the individual walks May you use us as a light in this city. May you extend your hands to the hurting through us. May you extend your heart to the person who doesn't know what love is through us. May you help us to be a community of redeemed people who show who we are by our love for one another, by our love for the community, but most of all, by our love for you. And may that ripple out into everything we do.